0: Ciao, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a dialogue about how space, technology, and exploration are transforming our solar system. Andy, welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast. Thank you very
1: much. Very happy to be here.
0: How are uh, you and the
1: team over there in Copenhagen? Good. Uh, We're uh, coming to the end of what feels like a very long winter, so uh, I'm looking forward to uh, uh, everyone sort of waking up and uh, getting going on construction sites again. Nice. It's exciting. Uh, and,
0: yeah, it's uh, an exciting mission you guys are on with Minimass, and and uh, we were, we're wondering what your aha moment
1: was that really inspired you toward this project. Uh, well, I have uh, been working in the engineering, structural engineering, specifically world for. 15 or 16 years um, as a design consultant. So I had come across a lot of different projects and different techniques for building things. And I had designed many things myself, but there was a moment when I was sitting in a meeting talking with a group of contractors and architects about 3D printing and trying to make the point that we should be designing to suit the manufacturing method, rather than trying to use 3D printing to do what we can already do using more traditional methods. So if you're a precast concrete manufacturer, it makes no sense to try and make exactly the same as your precast factory using 3D printing, because it will never be cheaper than this, than the, the, the sort of factory system they already have. Whereas if you design something that that is this sort of uh, specific to the advantages of 3D printing, then there's the possibility to make uh, all sorts of interesting things. So at the point at which someone said, no, you can't do it like that. I thought, well, I'm going to go and do it. I'm going to try and see how far I get to. Uh, and there's always that moment where you go off confidently thinking, oh, well, I'm going to prove everyone wrong. Uh, doesn't necessarily work out that way. And of course, these things are never linear. Um, but after a few dabs in the dark, you, I, I found myself picking up a sort of golden thread and, and following it where, where it led. And uh, here we are a long time later.
0: Yeah. Congratulations. And it seems like you've been on the mission for
1: uh, a few years now. Yeah, so I started my company um, in October 2021, and I left. I left the the, the place I was working, the Atkins Ingalls Group, uh, at that point in September 2021. Um, so I've been I've been pushing Minimas for for a little while now, about eighteen months. So really, in the grand scheme of things, it's a very new, very young business. Uh, but I've been thinking about the way horses work in buildings probably my whole life without even realizing it. Um, and so this is the culmination of years of Lego and uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of things you know love it it's, um, yeah I remember the
0: those Lego days were a <laughs> very uh, what's the
1: uh, I would say, Fulfilling, almost at that age. Absolutely, absolutely. When you when you can um, when you can physically represent your thoughts, it's amazing. Yes. Uh, and one of the things that I I uh, I I rewatched the movie The Matrix the other day, uh, which I'm sure I'm sure you know that that movie. And um, uh, one of the things in it, of course, is that people can read the screen, the green lines on the screen, and that tells them what's going on. And it occurred to me that structural engineers, are they do the same, but with forces. When you look at a building or a bridge, you can see the architecture and the cladding. But if you know where to look, you can also see the forces and the behavior. And that's my, almost my goal, realizing my, my career that is the goal that I have had for the buildings that I've designed is to try to show people how the building is working after we've built it uh, so it's not having more structure than you need it's not having less structure than you need it's having to structure it in the right places and then someone who can read that kind of thing can look at it and say "Ah, well of course it's like that it has to be like that. There is no other possible way it could be. It's obvious, you know. That's for me. That's the dream with a with a project. So Minimass is almost taking that approach to a granular level for a single component, but then turning it up to eleven. It's the the maximum you could possibly have for that for that type of component. Awesome. It, it was really interesting to. Uh
0: to read about how most of the concrete in the middle doesn't do that much um, in, yeah. in comparison like, to the top and bottom.
1: That's right. It's like the dirty little secret of concrete engineers. Most of the concrete is there to hold hold the reinforcement in place. So sure, it's doing something. And certainly at, cert- at different parts of the beam, it, it has different jobs. So uh, close to a support, it will be resisting shear forces, in which case it's essential. Uh, but at the middle of the beam where you have a a, a big bending moment, um, then it's it's the the purpose is to separate the tension part from the compression part. Uh, and in the case of minimas, we're doing that separation without pouring a whole load of material into the into the geometry. Um, so how? should we go about 3D printing concrete? Oh, well, um, uh, the industry so far has generally gone down the route of residential construction. And I completely understand the reasons for that because there's a big market for residential construction. Uh, And with a new technology or relatively new technology for, uh, for construction as 3D printing, the business case has to come first otherwise there'll be no investment so there is a clear business case for residential construction uh, and that's particularly because um, houses don't need a great deal of structure uh, they don't have very long spans they don't have very high loads uh, they're not often they're not very tall so you can get away with building things which don't have a, a, a great structural demand on them The drawback with printing houses is that you end up making everything a wall. It's like that saying, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, when you have a 3D printing machine for concrete, everything ends up looking like a wall. Because it's really easy to make walls. And you don't even have to do much in the way of reinforcement. Um, However, when you're building a house, You don't need concrete walls everywhere. Maybe you need some concrete walls, and of course in different parts of the world you need different requirements. Maybe it's seismic, maybe it's wind. Uh, The way you design in Florida is different to the way you design in uh, California, which again is different to the way you design in Copenhagen. But um, if you've got a 3D printer, you end up making everything a concrete wall because it's uh, uh, faster and lower labor. But, from a sustainability point of view, that's not a very good idea because you've ended up using a structural material with a relatively high embodied carbon or something that didn't need to be structural and doesn't need to have a high embodied carbon. So there is a business case for houses, uh, but I'm not sure yet we've cracked the ability to do sustainable 3D printed concrete houses. So my approach being a structural engineer was to do something slightly different. Uh, When I look at the companies who who make houses, there are a lot of smart construction people and uh, architects and uh, material scientists and robot people in there. Um, But the structural engineering industry or world has not really grabbed onto it yet. Uh, So I'm I'm looking at trying to make bigger structures, longer spans, bridges even using 3D printing, and the fundamental challenge is, is working with reinforced concrete uh, if we're going to work to the to the existing codes and standards. Reinforced concrete is a challenge with 3 d printing because the reinforcement gets in the way of the printer. You can place reinforcement through a layer, sorry, along a layer and across a layer, but you can't place it through a layer. So there's always one axis if you're if you're talking about reinforced concrete, but it's difficult with 3D printing. So I have looked at a few different ways of doing that. The first strategy was to say, don't reinforce. So use the concrete like stone or or brick masonry. And then if you you can make that work, you can almost make any geometry you like. So that was the first step. Uh And certainly the first physical tests, the prototypes I made were unreinforced concrete. With external post-tensioning, that was pretty exciting, I've got to say, because no one makes unreinforced concrete. It was a kind of a crazy idea, and yet you can still make bending structures that support whatever loads you design them for using this almost magical approach of unreinforced concrete. It's not always the best solution, though, and that became clear as I started to sort of um, widen the number of use cases um, and there are certainly situations when you need the robustness that reinforcement provides and when you need the ability to accommodate unknown or variable loading then reinforcement is uh, a yeah, sort of get out of jail free card so in the end with minimas I've, I've tried to to go down two lines one which is a, an unreinforced version and another option, which is a reinforced version. And hopefully that means I can cover both when it's appropriate to do one type and when it's appropriate to do the other. Nice. Um, uh, So
0: we're trying to understand um, how the 3D printing process works. And uh, it seems like we, we, we would take a tether or a wire and then enclose bars around the wire and and 3D print
1: in situ? Uh, no, I would say it's more like, it's more like uh, squeezing toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube. So the material that we use uh, can vary and there has been a, a big and very significant uh, step change in material science in the last 12 months, but we'll come to that. First of all, most three D printing up to now has been done with a mortar. I uh, will start you there for a bit. Okay, where where should I start? I can't hear you now. Okay, um, so the the material is. is is a significant thing, and up to recently, most 3D printing was done with a mortar as opposed to a concrete. Mortar being a slightly difficult thing to define, but I'm, I'm going to say it's where aggregates are smaller than two millimeters, uh, which basically means you're printing with something which is a, has a high cement content and uses sand but doesn't use stone or aggregate. And in that scenario, it's good for the printer because you don't get blockages. You have a very homogenous material that you squeeze out of the the tube and place wherever you you want. The challenge is then modifying the viscosity, uh, the slump of the concrete, so that when you lay down a layer, you can come back and lay down another layer on top shortly afterwards. And, uh, you know, the whole thing doesn't, doesn't fall over. What has... Recently happened, though, after a lot of R&D from from the materials people, is we're now getting to the point where we can start printing with uh, real aggregates. And that opens up a a door because, and when I say real aggregates, I'm at at the stage now where we're at the 10 millimeter, so half an inch size aggregates. Uh, And that's significant because it does two things. It drives down the cement content, Uh, because the aggregates take up a a larger volume of the material, and it drives down the cost. So by driving down the cement, you drive down the cost, because cement is the expensive part of concrete, but you also drive down the carbon in the concrete. So we're getting to the point, and my most recent prototypes were printed with a concrete which is genuinely concrete, performs like concrete, sits within the code framework or euro codes like concrete and as an embodied carbon a bit like concrete uh, which is a really significant step and I always started this process thinking oh, that the, the clever materials people will be working on this and they'll probably get there sooner rather than later but I didn't know whether it would be this year next year or five years time uh, I'm, I'm delighted that, uh, that we're, we're there so quickly. I think that's a major step forward.
0: Okay um, uh, it's, it's exciting and but uh, well, understand more now and we're we're also wondering why the sawtooth design
1: Well um, there are a few well, a couple of reasons. One was I was working with, on the basis, uh, with the first prototypes of um, unreinforced concrete, as I've said, and I wanted to be able to print something uh, using as much printed concrete as I possibly could. So my logic was, um, there's a certain geometry which I want to create, which is basically a series of struts that separate a steel cable from a concrete uh, flange. Now, the struts in their uh, analytical form are straight, uh, but could be also inclined. Uh, The the trouble with an inclined strut is that it's quite difficult to print. Uh, So printing overhangs and printing at an angle are a bit of a challenge. I I wanted to make it as easy as possible. So there is, um, there is, a concept called the constant force truss, which if anyone goes and looks up online, they'll find something related to uh, graphic statics and the constant force truss. And it's a diagram basically, which shows you a geometry, a truss-like geometry, where you're guaranteed a constant force in the tension part of the uh, truss, and you're guaranteed compression not necessarily constant compression, but compression in every other aspect. So once you start off with this constant force truss, uh, if you turn it upside down, you end up with um, a straight part and a whole bunch of inclined struts sticking up in the air. And if you print those inclined struts, they would fall over. So what I did was I enclosed them in a kind of triangular sawtooth pattern, which uh, is easy to print, but also provides some element of load uh, load transfer. So if, if the applied load's not exactly the way I imagined, then the width of the sawtooth uh, provides some flexibility in, in how the load gets from the, the concrete to the steel. Awesome, very interesting. You see, you can print upside down in my with my geometry. You can print upside down. And that means you've got to, broadly speaking, have a flat surface to print on. Um, and you can print on top of layers, layer by layer. That's, that's, uh, that's no problem. The other way to do it is to print on the side. And that gives different opportunities. So if you print something on the side, then you don't have to have the sawtooth pattern because now you're printing the perimeter of the beam on elevation. So that implies that these struts that I was talking about, you can actually make the struts now uh, given a certain thickness so then they're not uh, going to fail through buckling. But if you're printing on its side and you imagine that the elevation, then you have much more flexibility in 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 that geometry. And what I found is that going back to the beginning, if I wanted to make a reinforced concrete mini-mass beam, then I would end up printing it on its side and printing the perimeter almost a shell or a formwork for the beam, which then allows me to place reinforcement. So I I have two distinct uh, manufacturing techniques. If it's unreinforced, I'll print something upside down. And if it's reinforced, I'll print it on its side. it seems like there are a lot of uh, benefits too with with, with your uh, manufacturing process too. Yes, and we're really only scratching the surface of what I think is possible. Um, it's funny that I haven't come across a lot of other people doing what I'm doing. So I'm exploring 3D printed concrete from the structural point of view. Um, and so we're I wouldn't say we're making it up as we're going along because we're using the codes to guide us, but I'm also using the forces to guide me uh, without sounding too uh, uh, Star Wars about it. So um, we know my, fun- my sort of fundamental principle is that concrete is good in compression and steel is good in tension. So if we can always keep the concrete in compression, then we're the winning. Uh, I started with the simply supported beam because it's a fundamental building block of structural engineering. You can do a lot with a beam, but it's not the end. Uh, it's just the beginning. If you can make a beam, then you can make a slab. If you can make a slab, then you can make a roof. You know, there are all sorts of sort of steps. So starting with a simply supported beam was was um, the, the I think the right idea. But I've also moved on to now continuous beams and antennas. continuous beams being significant because you can make more efficient structures, but some element of continuity also gives you the ability to start thinking about robustness in a different way and seismic performance, which uh, is not significant in Denmark, but of course is significant in all sorts of places around the world. Uh, so Uh, when I first launched the simply supported version of um, the one of the criticisms, or at least comments, was that it was perfectly nice, but not suitable in uh, seismic areas. Yes, absolutely. But uh, once we go to a continuous type beam, then then that kind of concern uh, is going to be addressed. nice
0: yeah it was uh, really interesting to learn about how uh your your approach can reduce material costs in truck deliveries by
1: 50% yes so material costs come down because i'm using less material it's as simple as that um uh, i do want to move towards a lower carbon concrete and maybe that will have an effect on the unit price of the concrete. But by using less and comparing like for like, it will always be a saving of materials. The question is whether we can generate the saving of the total beam compared to a similar beam uh, in, in the precast world, or indeed a steel beam. Uh, I think we can because of the um, reduced formwork costs, as in zero, uh, and the reduced labour costs. Certainly, if there's no reinforcement, then uh, very significantly reduced labour. Um there will be the question of fire performance and that will that will that will be significant. and so um, that there, there might be an added cost depending on the certain project requirements for uh, extra fire protection. Um, but that's the kind of thing you would have in a steel beam, so it's a very well understood uh, type of technique the 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 number of deliveries, though, is one of the things that contractors uh, I speak to like because, there are two two things we can do there. One is if we fabricate in a factory and deliver to site. Typically, deliveries of concrete are governed by weight, not size, because the weight of a standard truck before you have to have special permissions is is set to a you know a certain number. Uh, and because concrete is so heavy, you might get two or three traditional beams on a truck. Whereas if you've reduced the mass by 70% or something of that order, then all of a sudden you can get five, six, seven, eight beams on the same truck. Uh, and that has a big impact on the number of trucks. The second version is you decide to manufacture on site. So if you have space, it wouldn't necessarily work in the center of Manhattan, but if you had space in a, uh, a large, out-of-town site, let's say, let's say you're building a logistics centre or something where there's a bit of bit of space, then you can deliver the printer to the location and fabricate the beams on-site. Not necessarily in-situ, you would still make them in a prefabricated way, but you would cut out all of the deliveries by making them on-site and lifting them. In the it's incredible. I think... Uh
0: yeah yeah i just um, you know that with, with with concrete being responsible for 7%
1: of global co2 i think this could have a huge impact i i agree and the the holy grail for uh, reducing carbon in concrete is is floor slabs because uh, something like people say different numbers, but something like between sixty and eighty percent of the embodied carbon in a structure, so not cladding or anything like that, but in a structure, comes from the floor. Um, columns are very efficient, and they, they don't, the columns and beams maybe end up twenty percent something like that. Um, so if we can, if we can find a way to to lower the carbon in in the floor slabs then we're really going to make a significant difference. So there is a a sort of mini-mass slab version that I'm working on. Um, But equally, I like a hybrid system at the moment where we replace the concrete floors with timber floors, CLT floors, cross-laminated timber. And we use a mini-mass frame so that we can get long spans, but lightweight floors and drive down the overall uh, embodied carbon uh, awesome, and so if
0: uh, one of one of us, you know, listening, uh, were to find ourselves building an apartment or or industrial or commercial complex, you know, when or how could we use your three D printing
1: process? Um, the 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 Technology for this uh, improves in efficiency with length of beam, which is a very complicated way of saying it doesn't really make sense to make uh, residential structures using this kind of approach, because in houses, you, you tend to try to avoid beams in the first place. And if you have them, you want them to be as thin as possible because you don't have much head height. So steel beams are the typical approach, if you have any beams at all, certainly in, in Europe. Um, and if you're trying to compete with a with a, a six-inch or 150-millimeter steel beam, it's not going to be possible using this mini type of approach. So I'm basically telling people that when you get above about six meters, um, mini-mass starts to be competitive, and anything above about 12 meters, it's really... The the right answer, uh, uh, sort of agnostic of other material types. You know, comparing with composite steel floors or steel trusses, all of those things, the the costs associated with mini mass will be will be lower. I'm, I'm convinced about. So the longest bound structures are are where we where we would look. I don't yet have my own manufacturing facility, but my strategy for this is to work with trusted partners in the different parts of the world or different countries uh, and effectively subcontract the manufacture of, of these to those, to those partners. Uh, of course, we have to deal with different regulatory regimes all around the world. So in the US, we would need an engineer of record for, for anything um, which uh, would have to be locally registered. Uh, and I don't have registration in all 50 of the US states. Or indeed any of the U.S. states, but um, so that's another reason why I'd be working with a, a trusted partner. Uh, at the moment, I have been talking to a couple of companies in the U.S. and equally in Canada. So there are there are options there. So if someone did have a project, then, then they contact me through through my website, and um, we'd get straight on it. Uh, and the thing that I have found with the people who make. 3D printed houses at the moment is they're very interested in this kind of approach because it adds an extra uh, string to their bow with their existing printing facilities that they're currently not using. So um, finding a printer is is usually possible uh, and certainly is one of the the jobs that I've been working on.
0: Awesome. Well, We'll uh, keep our ears and eyes peeled here and uh, any potential opportunities and, and partners. And where our last question here is, um, do you think we can pl- apply a similar approach to off-world construction?
1: Yes, I was hoping you were going to ask me. So, I I, ha- I have had a lucky uh, career, um, as far as I'm concerned, because. When I, in my former career as a consulting engineer, I worked briefly, well, for six years at Foster and Partners in London. And one of my first projects there was the conceptual design of a moon base back in 2010, uh, which was part of a a European Space Agency funded research project. So I did a bit of work on on that, uh, got to know the materials and the performance requirements quite well. Um, And at that moment, we were talking about 3D printing uh, or laser sintering, I think actually the the technique was at the time, using regolith, so moon dust. But we hadn't, our thinking on structures hadn't developed anywhere beyond essentially igloos, so making dome-like structures. And there's a lot of logic to that, of course, because Domes are good in compression. It's possible to build them without formwork. There are all sorts of good reasons why you make a dome. But they're not great for uh, efficient use of space. Because if you make a dome that's tall enough for someone to stand up in, then there's so much space in the dome where people are not able to stand up in it. All around the edges. Later on, I was working at the Archie Ingalls Group uh, and I, I started working with them, developing some of the, their work on Mars uh, and the Moon. I think they were working with another 3D printer, a company called Icon in the US. And so I've had quite a lot of exposure to both the Moon and Mars and 3D printing. And I spent a long time thinking about that. So I was delighted when it occurred to me that I could make unreinforced concrete beams because the the fact it's unreinforced means it really is agnostic of material. It could be any compression-carrying material. It could be stone. So I've been talking to a stonemason in the UK about making a stone mini being very excited about that. It could be glass. It could be recycled plastic. There are all sorts of opportunities. So if there's a way of making regolith moon dust mars dust into a a sensible compression material then we can make mini mass beams on the moon or on mars and what that gives you is the ability to make flat structures so you don't have to have a dome you could make floors for people to walk on and uh, uh, that is potentially transformative
0: then Really exciting. I think uh, uh, it holds great
1: potential and and thanks so much for joining us here, Andy. My pleasure. It's a, It's been uh, great to, to talk about this.
0: Um, and and I think you guys are on an, an important mission here with MiniMass and uh, may the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank it's... you very much. It's...